uh, scripture alone, which is God's authority. We've covered faith alone, which is the means by which we are saved. We covered grace alone, which is how God responds to sinners. And today we're doing Christ alone. This is the, the central focus probably of all five points. It is uh, Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the provider of salvation. He is the supreme creator, the sovereign, the king. He is who we look to and hope in. And we're in Galatians today. The book Galatians was written originally to combat uh, Jewish theological invasions into the gospel. So what was happening in Paul's day is this letter was written specifically because there were Jews who were, who were converted to Christianity that would say, okay, you can become a Christian, you can, you can take part in the gospel, but you have to do this one Jewish thing that we all do, which is circumcision, right? So they would say, yes, come to Christ, but before you come, do something else, and then you can come. It didn't sound that bad, but what that was is what, that was, that was one addition, right? It was one first step, and then come to Christ, right? Doesn't sound all that bad, but what does this call into question? What it calls into question is this. Is Jesus enough? Is what he did on the cross sufficient to save people? Is his work, is his identity that he accomplished, is that enough? As we talk about the Reformation and men like Martin Luther, who we've talked about, the Roman Catholic Church then and now teaches a doctrine of the Mass. When you gather, it's called the Mass. And in this, Rome holds that the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. What that means is as we gather, there's a special way in which Jesus is re-offered. He's spiritually re-sacrificed, or as he comes into the bread and the wine, um, his actual presence, there is a spiritual sense in which Jesus is offered again for our sins. Uh, the priest reaches up, so to speak, and brings down Christ to offer him again for sins. He puts him on the altar, and by the authority of the priest, he offers Christ to forgive sins. In this, the priest can pardon sins as another Christ. Not that he is Christ, but that he is doing the same, the same role. He is pardoning sins by what Jesus has done, but he's doing it with the authority to say, I can do this. On top of this, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that penance, which is what you would do, penance is called, do penance, so it's a work. Confessions and following the seven, sac seven sacraments are means by which we receive grace to grow in holiness and to wash away our guilt and our sins. So again, the question has to be asked, is Jesus enough? Is what he did on the cross enough? That's the question. So the reformers in the 1500s, like Martin Luther, who we've covered, and a man named John Calvin, believed that Jesus is sufficient, that his death on the cross satisfied all that God required, and that the benefits received from Christ in his work are all we need to come to be made right with God. Sounds like the book of Galatians, right? Just, just, a, just a little addition, nothing bad. We just want to prime you before you come, right? The truth and centrality of Christ alone is the hub that all the spokes of the Christian life, think of a tire, it's the, central, it's the central truth that all the spokes of the Christian life flow from and are attached to, right? Christ alone, 
Uh, John Calvin wrote this, All of God's promises depend on Christ alone. It is only in Christ that God the Father is graciously inclined towards us. Martin Luther said something similar. He said, I teach that people should put their trust in nothing but Christ alone, not in their prayers, nor merits, or their good deeds. So our trust is not in that we're good people. It's not in the things we do. It's not in our attendance. It's not in our giving. It's not in our good works. Our trust is in the person of Christ. Christ alone is sufficient. And that's what the reformers and that's what the Bible argues. So first, I want us to see who Christ is. So not just what he did, but who he is is, more, is just as important as what he did. So his identity is it's kind of like inseparable twins. His work and person go together, right? You can't have one without the other, and one is just as important as the other. So first, who is Christ? Look at verse 4, Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come... So first we see that God's set forth time had come to pass, the fullness of time. Uh, just as the planets orbit and center around the sun, uh, so all of history, everything has unfolded from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 up until this moment in the fullness of time was planned for Jesus, for Jesus to come. Jesus is the most important person in the universe. Everything exists for him, by him, and through him. And this shows us clearly that the fullness of time has to do with Christ. Maybe, maybe you remember this. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see creation. And then chapter 3, we all know, it didn't last very long, uh, man sinned, right? There was the fall. Man was tempted. He sinned. The first sin ever committed, right, on earth. And do you remember what God did? So he promised death, which happened because spiritually death, and then they would actually die, but do you remember what God told them? Did God tell them anything good? If you remember, God actually gave them a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says that an offspring, a child, someone from the seed of the woman will come to crush the serpent's head. Do you remember that? There's, some, there's a promised one coming, right? This is what we call the proto-evangelion. So prototype, first type, right, proto and evangelion means gospel. So this is the first gospel ever preached in the Bible was by God. And it was to say, someone's coming. I'm going to send someone to come, right? This is what all of the Bible is about. It's about Jesus coming. God preached to Adam that someone would be coming. One of the main themes in the book of Genesis is always that question. Is this the one? It must be Abraham. Look how good he is. Okay, no, he's pretty bad. Joseph. He, no, he's bad too, right? Jacob, the, it's God, but no, it's not Jacob, right? That, that's one of the themes. Is, is it really him? Like think of Eve, her first son. It's got to be him. And he kills his brother. We're just what's going on? So there's this constant, who is it? That The Old Testament is constantly, is, is it David? Is, is, is he going to save our people? Is it the judges? Who is it, right? This is the main theme. And this is the fullness of time. All the people in the Bible from Noah to David, all of them, are shadowy, fuzzy pictures of what Jesus will be like, of what the Savior will look like, right? So when you think of the fullness of time, remember that God's timing is best, it is wise, it is gracious. That phrase, fullness of time, is like thousands of years, right? We would think, would you kick it in the gear a little bit, Lord? Like thousands of years? Just send to the next day, right? 
So God's timing is always good. It's best, even though we think it's lacking. It's always wise. And this was God's time. It's for our good and for his glory. And look what God does. When the fullness of time had come, what does God do? Look at verse 4. God sends forth his son. So again, everything was made for Jesus to be sent. This is the greatest miracle in the world, an unfathomable reality, which we call the incarnation. This is what Christmas Day is about, right? Jesus becomes a person. He's born, right? There's a baby born. This text and others like it speak of this really important truth that God sent forth his son. If that means he was sent, what does that assume about his person? Well, that he existed before he was sent, right? Jesus was sent into the world. He existed outside the universe and he was sent into it. This means that Jesus Christ is God. He is not God-like. He's not godly, though that's true. He is God. He is one with the Father. The Godhead is three persons, one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. If you look at John chapter 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and by Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the creator of the universe. Everything was made by Him. When you read of Genesis chapter 1, and in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. How does God make everything? What does He do? Well, He speaks. Well, who's His Word? Jesus is the Word. So when God spoke in the beginning, He spoke through His words, through His Son. God made all things through his son. The father creates and does everything through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says Jesus upholds everything by his word. He says in Matthew 28 that he has all authority on heaven and on earth. Hebrews 1 also says that the angels worship Jesus and men alike on, on, on earth when he demonstrates his power. Jesus sits on the throne, rules all things, ordains all things, controls all things. He is the mighty God, the almighty Christ, the everlasting king. Do you see Jesus as that Almighty? Do you recognize that He is the King? He sits above the throne of the universe. All of the galaxies do His bidding. Are you, are you aware of that? He rules over the devil, over demons. He's the King over angels, over the church. He rules everything, every commander He commands, every king He guides, every ruler He rules. He is immortal, invincible, indescribable, and everlasting. That is Jesus Christ. He's massive. And God sent him forth at the fullness of time to enter into the drama of his own history. It is thought that Shakespeare, you guys probably know the name from school, and you think, oh, man, Shakespeare, I can't stand those books. Uh, it's often thought that Shakespeare played a role in some of his own plays, like Hamlet. They think he played his father's ghost, I think is the assumption. We don't really know for sure, but the thought is that he played a couple, a couple roles in his own story. Jesus is the same. He created everything, and as the creator, he played a role in his own story, in his own drama. He played a role. He is the role. He is the center of the play. The stage of the world was set for the fullness of time. Jesus enters into the narrative and takes over. So in love, you see this, that God sends his only begotten son, the precious begotten son, God's only son. He sends into the world. You see the love of the Father for us in this. Likewise, you see that Jesus was not forced. All right, Dad, I'll go. That's not how that works. Jesus desired to come. 
right? He wasn't forced. He wasn't twisted his arm. This wasn't discipline that he came to the world. Jesus genuinely loves sinners. That's why he came. He stepped down. He delighted to do his Father's will, and he came to the universe to save sinners. So God's love for sinners is seen most fully in this. What happened when the angels sinned? Do you remember? God cast them out, right? You sin against God, get out. Right? They're sent out, right? When we sinned, God sends his son. He doesn't send us out. He sends his son. What's the difference between the sins? Nothing. It's rebellion. God did not deal with us the way that we deserve. He doesn't send us out and say, get out. I don't care. Go to hell. That's what he said to the demons, right? But when we sin, what does he do? He doesn't spare his son. He sends his son. Isn't that amazing? Can you fathom God's love for sinners? So that's, that's who Christ is. Look again in verse 4, born of woman. And this, again, is the miracle that God became man, that he entered into his own creation. The unbegotten son is born. The infinite, Charles Spurgeon says, becomes an infant. There's at least two or three babies in here. Every time I see a baby born, I think of the incarnation. Jesus Christ, God, was once a nursing baby. I mean, just, I know we know, but just, just pause for a second. God became a baby. He nursed from his mother. He cried at night a lot. Probably always woke up Mary. He was a baby. The creator, everything. He, he rules every universe and became a, a, an infant. That not only shows the humility, but also shows that God does value life from the womb. The unborn are human. Jesus became what we'd call a fetus, right? You can say that, that's fine. It means a small person. He really was a little tiny person, microscopic. He really was. He became a person. And what does this mean? This means that Jesus has two natures, right? So he's fully God and fully man. He's one person with two natures. But Jesus' nature is not like ours. It's different. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. So Jesus' nature, his human nature, was sinless. We are born loving sin. Jesus was not born with a sinful nature. He loved to obey. He was born pure and spotless because the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit made him holy, right? He was like us in every way, Hebrews 4 says, except without sin. And thus, Jesus experienced everything on earth that we experience. If you know, if you know your Bibles well, you know that Jesus does many things. He gets tired and he eats, he sleeps. He cries, he rejoices, he's angered, he's also tempted but never sinned. He prayed, he knew the scriptures, he lived by the power of the Spirit, and he worshiped the Father. He had a real body, a real mind, and a real soul. He truly is God and man united in one person. You could say he's two 100%, 100% man, 100% God. And it had to be this way for Jesus to accomplish the mission. He is the one mediator between God and man. Why did Jesus have to be man? He had to act as my representative, right? An angel could not die for me. I'm not an angel. So God became a man, became a real human being to die for real human beings. Uh, Paul calls him the second Adam. So we have Adam number one in the garden. Didn't last very long. Failed. He was our representative. 
Jesus is the second Adam, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He's the head of God's new people, his new creation. And as God, he can do what only God can do. Jesus is God, so he can absorb the wrath of God and survive. He died and rose on the third day. Jesus can say things that just sound insane because he's God. He can say that I can lay my life down when I want and I can bring it back up. It's John chapter 10. Jesus, in John 19, it says that he gave up his own spirit. Okay, I'm going to die now. Do you guys control that? We just do what we're told. God says, stop, we stop breathing, right? Jesus could command his life because he is God. Therefore, we read texts like this. There is one God, and there's one meter between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the God-man came into the world to save sinners. It's good news that Jesus became man. God became a man. So that's the person of who Christ is. Now Paul's going to show us the the inseparable truth, the twin truths of his work. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. Born of woman, so he's man, born under the law. This is the means by which Jesus would accomplish salvation. Again, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to his Father. Jesus never sinned. I know I've said that twice, but you need to remember, Jesus never sinned. He always obeyed. He was perfect, right? He was born under the law. Under God's law, under God's commandments, under God's standard, right? We read texts like this, Philippians 2, 8, He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Hebrews 5, He learned obedience through what he suffered. 1 Peter 2, He committed no sin. 1 John 3, 5, In him there is no sin. So again, Jesus, the apostles agree, Jesus never sinned. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of my Father. His desire, His main thing is to obey his father. He never sinned. John chapter 8, Jesus said this, I always do the things that are pleasing to the father. He never displeased his father. We do all the time. Jesus never did. He always obeyed. He, He wasn't just not sinning, which is good. He was doing something better. What is that? Always obeying, right? He stored up righteousness. That's more, that's much more important. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? Ever think about that? Well, why did he get baptized for then? Was he like just need a bath or what was the point of that? Why did he live the way he did? Why, why, why was he under God's law? Why did he do these things? Listen to the words. So if you remember in Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus tells John to baptize him. And John, I'm sorry, did I hear you correctly? You said baptize you. So he knew who he was. And listen to Jesus' response. This, so John Baptist is confused, as you might have been like, well, why is he getting baptized? Listen to what Jesus says. It is fitting, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Friends, Jesus did not come to abolish God's law. He came to fulfill it, right? He came to fulfill what we do not fulfill. Jesus came to satisfy God's law and the perfect obedience that requires. This demonstrates that God's commandments, the Ten Commandments, you, you can think of that, are good. God's law is good. But the problem is, since we're fallen, we think, oh, it's kind of like a criminal looking for the police. We don't like law, right? It tells me I'm bad. I don't like that. The reason why the law seems bad is because it shows us, man, I can't keep this law. I keep sinning. I keep falling short. I just can't keep it. 
But Jesus kept it, so he delights in the law. If you, if you, if you are familiar with Psalm chapter 1, it says, Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. Do you know who did that every time perfectly? Jesus. We can never do that. Right? We, we should aim for those things, but Jesus kept the law. He always did that perfectly, right? In fact, God's law is meant to do this very thing. When you think about God's law, it's very discouraging at times. Galatians chapter 3, the same book we're in, just a chapter over in verse 24. It says the law is a schoolmaster, or it says it's meant to lead us to Christ, or it held us captive until Christ came. If you look at God's law and you seek to find comfort in God's Ten Commandments, you will never be comforted by God's law. God wrote the law on tablets of stone. If you're cold, do you search for stone blankets? Man, that feels real good. Well, no, of course not. Okay, that's a stupid thing to say. Well, that's the point. God's law is not meant to be comforting. It's not meant to think. You don't find comfort in law. It's hard. It's, it's not comforting. It's condemning, right? If you look at God's law, what do you see? Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Do not covet. And do you ever do those things? Yeah, I do. Man, I can't keep That's a hard. That's a hard law, Lord. That's hard. This morning, if you combed your hair, you probably looked into a mirror. See how you look. God's law is the same. You look in the law, you see how you look. Wow, I have not kept the Ten Commandments. It's because God's law is meant for people who are sinners. It's meant to do this. It's meant to hang over you to show you how you look. It's meant to remind you that you need cleansing, that you can't keep it. You need someone else to keep it for you. The truth is that we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is who we are. God's law shows us the impossible standard. God's law shouts this, obey, listen. And what do we do? We don't obey. We forget to listen. We sin. We fall short. That's, that's the problem. The problem is not God's law. The problem is our heart. Our heart is fallen. Therefore, when you look to God's law, it's going to grind you to powder. Does it not? Do you know how many commandments the Jews had to follow? It's about 650. Could you follow all those? Could you follow like two? You can't follow one. God's law is meant to be crushing. It's meant to lead you, to guide you, to say, I am fallen. I can't keep this law. I can't be good. I can't be good enough. I can't obey all the way. I'm fallen. I need, a, I need help. That's the point of the law. If you see God's law that way, as a sinful man, you are in good company. That's the point. Look at verse 5. Jesus was born under that law to keep it because we don't keep it. To do what? Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came to redeem sinners. Sinners guilty of breaking what? The law. That's why he came. The law that we're under. God's perfect standard. Jesus did not come, he said, to condemn, but to save. He came on a rescue mission. Jesus came to redeem sinners. This is God's work of redemption. Redeem, redemption, same word. Here's the question, though. What does the word redeem mean? Have you ever considered the word redeem? Will we say redemption or perfect redemption, the full, right? We love those songs. What does the word redemption mean? Redemption carries the idea of purchasing or buying back or freeing slaves. If you have your Bibles, I specifically highly encourage you to turn to Leviticus chapter 25. 
This is probably one of the best pictures of what redemption is. 25, Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 49. This is probably the best picture of what redemption is. Um, if I was given a choice to choose an Old Testament text to preach from, this might be one of them. This would be one that it's, I can't even give you a full sermon on it without having to, I need, I need more time to preach is what I'm trying to say. It's a good, beautiful text. I want to read it to you. Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 49 says this. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother beside him becomes poor, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. This is God's laws for slavery. Now, when we hear the word slavery in the Bible, here's what we always do. We step back and we think, oh no, God likes slaves. We panic, okay? Slavery in the Old Testament in the Bible is not what we think of in America. We think of racial slavery. We think of cruel beating and race that is nothing what the Bible is about. Bible slavery is, is completely foreign to that idea. Uh, these are commandments that God would give to Israel specifically to work off debt. If you could not afford to pay a debt, you would sell yourself as a slave, as a servant. You can use that word, but I think slave is more helpful. And you would live with them. They provide your food. They give you a job. You'd live with you. live in their house. So kind of, kind of a pretty good deal, right? You'd work off a debt. If you became broke, you could sell yourself. A lot of times people would sell their families because they, they, they couldn't afford anything. This was actually for your provision, for your safety. So God provided. Specifically, you could sell yourself to another Israelite. The point was that if you were a Jew, you look to your brother next to you and say, hey, okay, I can't pay off that debt, but I know who he is. Can you, can you buy us? We'll work it off. It's your neighbor, so you trust him. You know who he is, right? The good news of this is that you were bound to to work only six years of labor. So you weren't in a lifetime contract. You weren't dead meat. If you're sold to Israel, you had six years. So you were set free. So again, there's mercy provided. You're not stuck. You could, you could choose to stay as long as you wanted uh, or after six years, but you, you could be let go. So again, it's provision. But look at Leviticus 25. Go to verse 39. I know it's a little bit of a different sermon for a second. I want you to see this. Look at verse 39. If your brother, who's, who's your brother? Your Jewish friend, your Jewish brother, becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. The point is, you're not going to be cruel to him. He, he's, not, he's not a foreign man. He's your brother. Yeah, he's a slave, but this is your brother. You're going to treat him with love and respect because he's your brother. It's, he's, he's of your own kin, right? This is a different form of slavery because in verse 42 and 46, God says that he owns them. So you better treat that Jewish man right because I own him. You don't, you don't hurt him. You don't harm him. You treat him according to my word because he's one of my people, right? But this text they're looking at in Leviticus 25, 47 through 49 is a little different. Who does it say that they're, they're being sold to? A stranger, right? A sojourner, someone who's not a Jewish person, right? It's a, it's a different man. It's a different kind of slavery. This is a willing act in which a poor, desperate, needy, helpless Jewish man sees himself as he is, helpless. He sells himself to a stranger who is not his friend, but he's held, and he's held captive by them 
out of desperation. And then what does God say? What does he give them a chance to do? To be freed, right? We'd call this the redemption price, right? It would be, it's not just some, oh, it's like 10 bucks. It's a huge amount of money. It's massive, right? That's why it says you could free yourself if you became rich. So this is a lot of money. It's not just a couple dollars. This is years of worth of wages. And he would say that one of your brothers, one of your, one of your kin, cousin, uncle, someone like you could pay a price and get you out. It was either this or you had to wait until the year of Jubilee. How many years of Jubilee? Anybody know? Yeah, seven. And specifically with this, it has to do with every 50. So you're in a long time, stuck for a long time. Either that or you get freed. So think of yourself as being a Jewish man, sold yourself into slavery to a man who's not a Jew. He doesn't care about your God. He doesn't care who he is. And you're enslaved. How would you feel? Hopeless, right? I got no shot getting out of this. I'm under their law. I'm their slave. I can't get out. I'm stuck. Do you see who could redeem them? Had to be someone like them. A brother, a kin, someone who became one of them, who was one of them. I hope you see the work of Christ in this. We were slaves to our sin. We are born in sin. No one forced you to become a sinner. You wanted to be a sinner. That's why you're a sinner. We sold ourselves into sin. We are condemned by the law. We are slaves to our sin. Jesus said, if you, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. If you sin, you are enslaved to it. We are hopeless, helpless, and condemned. Our taskmaster is sin. And like the Egyptians enslaved to the Israelites, sin is a cruel master. What are the wages you get for sin? It's death. It's a pretty bad payoff. Our only hope would be for another person, someone who is rich, to free us from our slavery, to redeem us, to buy us back. And who would that be? Jesus Christ became man to redeem us from under the law. His death was the means by which we are set free. His death is our ransom price. The wages of sin is death. He pays your wage. He redeems you from your slavery. You are bought. Nothing you could do. You, you cannot become rich enough to get out of God's sin debt. You were indebted for life. But if another comes who is like you and pays the price, you can be set free. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood. Friends, that is what Christ has done. You've been redeemed. You've been set free from your slavery to sin, from, your, from the law's demands, there's a song that John Bunyan wrote that we think he wrote. It's a poem. It says, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me to fly and gives me wings. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. He provides what he commands. In Christ, you are freed from condemnation, freed from your bondage to sin and death. Just as God rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, he rescues us from our slavery to sin and death. And you've done none of it. Isn't that good news? That's the good news of the gospel. God sent his son into the world to be born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Now we could really sing, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. John Calvin wrote this. By putting on himself, Jesus, the chains, he takes them off of another. 
Christ became liable to keep the law, that by exemption from it, he might obtain freedom for us. One song says this, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. In his death, Jesus paid our penalty. We are redeemed from sin and death. He fulfilled the law, paid the price, and freed it by his work. And we must respond in repentance, receive the free gift of redemption. He will never cast you out by faith in Christ. So now as our brother, we see that we are redeemed by the blood of another. Now we get to see that we get the benefits of Christ. Look at verses 6 through 7. The end of verse 5, he writes this, that we might receive adoption as sons. So we go from slaves to what? Sons. J.I. Packer wrote this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. So adoption is, is one of the main reasons why God sent his son. Redemption was the price, adoption, or I'm sorry, redemption was the price, adoption was the point. The father seeks out lowly sinners to seat them with his son. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to give you a little history on that. In the first century, adoption was not like it is today. So we think of adoption, we think of looking for a kid who has no parents, who's in a very rough home, uh, or homeless, or something of that nature, and we think, I want, I want to rescue him. He's in, a, he, he's in plight. I want to get him. It's, it's kind of an act of mercy, right? It's a loving act of mercy. Uh, it, it's a good um, desire. However, in the first century, adoption was nothing like that. It didn't make you, oh, oh, he's an adopted son, like, like a second-class citizen. Instead, in the first century, it was the highest privilege to be adopted. It wasn't rescuing the poor. Instead, a father in the Roman world would adopt a child. And oftentimes, it was not a child. It was a mature person. It was 20s, you know, a young guy. Oh, he, he'd be good one to adopt. And they do it because of this. They want to find an error for their inheritance. So if they could have sons, well, these sons are all bad. But I'll adopt someone else to give my inheritance to, to give my last name to, to provide for them. Thus, the adopted ones were not children, but they are male adults, typically. Uh, they are chosen to perpetuate the name and receive the inheritance. Even if you already had children, as I said, you want to have an adopted son receive this. Uh, the adopted son was now chosen to represent the family. He would be the father's first choice. So I want this one. He's going to receive all that I have. He, he's going to have our name. He's going to resemble us. And he has my heart specifically. And now the adopted son, this is what happens. His former family, his rights to his former family are all gone. They're erased. He now has the rights of his adopted father. He is an automatic heir to the father's riches and inheritance. His old life is gone. Any debts he had, any records he had are removed. It's almost as if the day he's adopted, he, he's a brand new person. He just, you start from day one now. You're a new name, new person, new record, new history. This is what Jesus did when he redeemed us to redeem us as adopted sons. From slaves to sons. This is God's work. Look at verse 6 through 7. Because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're, you're no longer a slave, but a son. So God gives us the title of sons, but then he gives us the nature of sons. People who are Christians have the Holy Spirit inside them. 
First, God sends his son to redeem us. Then he sends the spirit to renew us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, and the spirit is slowly at work in your life to remove the power of sin through what Christ has done. They work in harmony. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and makes us what? Well, the Holy Spirit makes you holy, right? That's the point. He begins the work of renewing your mind, of making you more like Christ. He applies the work of Christ to your heart. That's how you're saved. This is a gracious work of the Spirit. The Spirit brings life. He imprints God's law on your heart. Now God's commandments, if you're a Christian, are what? They're good, right? I want to tell the truth because God's not a liar. I don't want to be like that. My father's truthful. I, I want to be like him, right? If you're a Christian, now the law is good. You love it, right? It's, your, it's what you want to do. I want to walk like that, right? Do you see the change? If you're a slave to the law, you hate the law. But if you're a son of the father, the law is good. The commandments are good and holy, and they are your delight. Because Christ, we can obey it and we will adore it. It's no longer our taskmaster. It's a teacher. It's no longer harsh, but it's heavenly. Only as sons of the adopted father do we receive the spirit. God has not left you as orphans. He's not told you to figure it out. Good luck. God sends you his spirit. The Holy Spirit who is God guides you, gives you assurance, comforts us, convicts us, conforms us, and reminds us of God's love for us. And by our spirits, we cry what? What does it say here? Abba, Father. Uh, one of the most helpful ways to think of this is not Daddy. Um, I know it's kind of common. Um, it's kind of close. The reason why a lot of um, commentators don't like it is because mature adults would call their fathers Abba. And I'm 28. I don't call my dad Daddy. It's weird. Just be honest. He probably appreciates that. Instead, it's more something like dearest father. Like, again, I don't call my dad that, but it's the, it's the affectionate call of a son to a father, right? It's that I can, I can bank on my dad. Uh, consider it this way. If there was a king gathering all of his uh, governors and rulers under him, and they had a big meeting in his throne room, the serious meeting, because he's the king after all, what are all his governors and subjects going to call him? Your majesty, right? Your highness, right? There's not going to be any... What's up, king? None of that. None of that garbage, right? There's fear, right? There's, yes, your honor. Yes, your highness. I used to work at a courthouse. That's how it was. Yes, judge. Yes, your honor. There was no first name basis, right? It was serious. It was fearful. But imagine the same meeting, the king's son walks in. During all this huge meeting, this powerful room, and the son walks in. He sits on his dad, and he says, hey, dad, I really need you. That is the picture of Abba, Father. I need you. Yes, he's your king, but he's your father. You can humbly approach him, but boldly approach him. He loves us. He cares for us. He delights for us. And because of the spirit, you are sons of God. So we don't need to fear the dread of night or when sorrows like sea billows roll. The God of all ruling is your father. That's who you sit under. The Father who sent the Son sends us the Spirit and dwelling in our hearts. And by faith, we walk according to the Spirit. Look at verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So again, what slave, what creature, what angel has this promise? Are there any angels that get the treasure of Christ? Not a single one. 
Is there any other creature in heaven? Think of the book of Revelation, these crazy creatures, all these eyes and wings and faces and crazy stuff. Do they get to be called sons? No. But we who were once slaves to sin are called sons of God. And why is that? If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, it's a very weird story. Uh, their father, Isaac, is basically blind, right? And he's going to give the blessing, right? Well, what does Jacob do? Do you remember what he does? He's deceitful. He's sneaky. This is evil what he does. But he clothes himself with goat skin, I think that's what it was. Some kind of hair because his brother's very hairy. He has go- read story, Genesis 27. He puts hair on his arms, right, and goes to his father and says, Well, hello, father. It's me, your son Esau. And his dad goes, you sound like Jacob, but your arms are hairy like Esau. It must be him. So he gets the blessing that Esau is supposed to get because he's in, he looks, feels, is outwardly appearing like Esau. Friends, in a much more righteous, majestic, beautiful way, you approach the Father and you get the blessing that's meant for Christ because you're clothed in Christ's work. You approach it not because of how you are, but because you're clothed in the work of another. You're clothed in his merits. You're clothed in his sonship. What Jesus earned in his life, you get by credit. What is that inheritance? I want to close with this. There's a book called Pilgrim's Progress. I think I mention it almost every week, pretty darn close, uh, that you need to read by John Bunyan. And it's uh, the story about Christian on his way to Celestial City. And here, Christian and his friend Hopeful are at the gate. And here's what happens. The angels... You are going now, said the angels, to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life, eat of the never-fading fruits. When you come there, you shall have white robes given to you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king, even all the days of eternity. There you shall, now, there you shall not see again such things as you saw in the, in the lower regions upon the earth, neither sorrow, sickness, affliction, or death, for the former things have passed away. Christian and hopeful ask this, what must, what must we do in this holy place? It was answered them. You must there receive the comfort of all your toil. Have joy for all your sorrow. You must reap what you have sown, even the fruit of all your prayers and tears and sufferings for the king. In that place you must wear crowns of gold and enjoy the sight and visions of the Holy One. For there you shall see him as he is. There also you shall serve him continually with praise with shouting and thanksgiving, whom you desire to in the world, even though with much difficulty, because of your flesh. There your eyes shall be delighted with seeing, and your ears with the hearing of the pleasant voice of the Almighty One. That is your inheritance. Let's pray.